So this week I want to uh, introduce a new psychoanalytic thinker to you. Um, I think in some ways the greatest of the post-Freudian, so that would be probably controversial. A very original thinker who is also a translator and a scholar. And I think the fact that he is a major translator, a translator of Freud into French, Freud's German text into French, um, that has been a quite a crucial experience for him, I think. And the concept of translation, um, both as uh, a literary activity, but also as a mental activity, is absolutely crucial. Uh, and he, it helps him to rethink in, in quite productive ways uh, and to reposition some of the fundamental concepts of, of Freud's metapsychology, particularly the concept of repression and sublimation. But in particular, he, as I said in my email, he goes back to Freud's uh, origins, as it were, uh, 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 the early essays on trauma and seduction that we began this course by looking at, which are often just not read by in psychoanalytic training institutes, etc. They just felt to be, oh, that's the old prehistory before Freud was a proper psychoanalyst. Um, and he gives an account of the development of Freud's thought uh, which challenges uh, sort of Freudian orthodoxy, if you like, or latter-day Freudian orthodoxy. And uh, th that has produced uh, both the Great Dictionary, the language of psychoanalysis, which has been translated into sort of 20-odd languages, um, uh, and is a kind of fundamental tool, I think, in, in uh, thinking analytically and critically about psychoanalysis. Um, but uh, as well as pioneering a return to Freud. He also, I think, moves beyond Freud in a variety of ways um, that are very suggestive and very productive, and ways that don't simply sort of dump Freud or dump psychoanalysis, but uh, attempt to return to and radicalize its, its, its most uh, productive uh, tendencies and currents of thought. So first of all, um, I think what I'll do first of all is just um, read out the, uh, the opening and closing stanzas of Blake's great poem, The Mental Traveller. I hope you've all uh, looked at it. You can download it easily from the internet, as I indicated on the, on the syllabus. I think for every major Freudian concept, there's a Blake poem. It's quite extraordinary, uh, quite uncanny indeed, the way in which Blake's insights in the Songs of Innocence and Experience and in some of the later poems dramatise things that, uh, uh, you know, a hundred odd years later, Freud and, uh, and later uh, psychologists were attempting to conceptualise. And I think in this very stark poem, which in all kinds of ways you could say has kind of got cryptic symbolisms of various kinds, nevertheless dramatises a kind of cyclical repetition uh, from generation to generation. Uh, and, it's, uh, and the kind of um, transmissions from generation to generation um, that Laplanche is attempting to kind of come to terms with and to theorize, um, and which uh, will, I th which, which is what the two great tragedies uh, we're going to end the term by looking at Sophocles, Oedipus, and Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, are also in crucial ways um, dramatizing. Okay, so I just want to read out and, and leave hanging in the air this very, very pungent and dramatic uh, poetic allegory, if you like, of the mental traveller. It begins, I travelled through a land of men, a land of men and women too, and heard and saw such dreadful things as cold earth wanderers never knew. For there the babe is born in joy that was begotten in dire woe, just as we reap in joy the fruit which we in bitter tears did so. And if the babe is born a boy, he's given to a woman old who nails him down upon a rock, catches his shrieks in cups of gold. She binds iron thorns around his head. She pierces both his hands and feet. She cuts his heart out of his side, at his side to make it feel both cold and heat. Her fingers number every nerve, just as a miser counts his gold. She lives upon his shrieks and cries, and she grows young as he grows old. Till he becomes a bleeding youth and she becomes a virgin bright, 
Then he rends up his manacles and binds her down for his delight. He plants himself in all her nerves, just as a husband man his mold, and she becomes his dwelling place and garden, fruitful, seventyfold. This whole series of cycles through the generations then takes place, uh, and the poem ends up like this. The final cycle that Blake describes about the, the rebirth of, of, of the child, in which a young female child and an older male figure goes through the cycle, uh, and then he becomes a wayward babe, and she a weeping woman old. Then many a lover wanders here, the sun and stars are nearer rolled. The trees bring forth sweet ecstasy to all who in the desert roam, till many a city there is built and many a pleasant shepherd's home. And when they find the frowning babe, terror strikes through the region wide. They cry, the babe, the babe is born and flee away on every side. For who dare touch the frowning form? His arm is withered to its root. Lions, boars, wolves, all howling flee and every tree to shed its fruit. And none can touch that frowning form except it be a woman old. She nails him down upon the rock and all is done as I have told. Right, right, extraordinary vision of the human generations uh, on the part of Blake. And uh, I read it out because I want it to resonate through not only the theoretical material we're looking at this week, but through the two great tragedies that we'll be looking at in weeks nine and 10. I'll start off with making a few remarks about Freud's uh, essay, Difficulty in the Path of Analysis, where he sets up uh, this analogy or affiliation, really, is how Freud sees it, between psychoanalysis and the Copernican revolution in science. And Freud sees himself very much aligned with that, uh, that model of uh, enlightenment and uh, science uh, that, um, that he sets out, and that is both literally represented and, and symbolized by the figure of Copernicus uh, and his move to a, um, a heliocentric uh, model of the, of the cosmos. And this distinction between uh, the geocentric, the Earth-centered, and the heliocentric, the Sun-centered models of the cosmos associated with the two great thinkers of Copernicus uh, in, uh, around about the time of the Rena European Renaissance and the great Alexandrian astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy the Great, who synthesized a whole tradition of astronomy going back hundreds of years before him. This distinction between uh, the Copernican and the Ptolemaic, I think, is a very useful intellectual sort of metaphor and piece of shorthand, in a way, um, for uh, both clarifying certain theoretical issues, which is why Laplanche takes it up from Freud, and in a very interesting way, turns it back against Freud himself. But I think it's also useful in helping us to think about uh, the two tragedies, okay? and the, read, the readings of the tragedies of, 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 of Sophocles, Oedipus, and Shakespeare's Hamlet that have come to dominate uh, the whole tradition of their reception and interpretation. So I, th I, I do want you to sort of get a grip on uh, the kind of th the, the fundamental theoretical issue at stake in this distinction between, uh, which is, goes beyond astronomy, uh, between, if you like, the Copernican and the Ptolemaic, the, uh, the self-centered or auto-centered and the other-centered um, sort of conceptual models, okay. Now, Freud first sets it up in terms of what he calls three blows to human narcissism. He gives a whole, he gives a sort of summary account of his theory of narcissism, uh, of the constitutive self-love of, of human beings uh, and of our mental apparatus. Now, he says this, is, this has been dealt three blows, three humiliations, as it were. The first one uh, he gives us is that of Copernicus and of astronomy where, uh, and I'll just briefly read out from him, um, in the early stages uh, of his uh, researches, man believed at first that his dwelling place on Earth was the stationary center of the universe with the sun, moon, and stars and planets circling around it. Uh, in this, he was naively following the dictates of his sense perceptions, for he felt no movement in the Earth, and wherever he had an unimpeded view, he found himself in the center of a circle that enclosed the external world. The central position of the Earth, moreover, was a token to him of the dominating part played by it in the universe and appeared to fit in very well with his inclination to regard himself as lord of the world. 
Okay, and uh, he acknowledges this. There is this uh, tradition uh, going back to Aristarchus of Samos in the third century BC, who similarly proposed uh, a heliocentric model of the cosmos in which uh, the Earth moves around the Sun rather than all the planets and uh, moving around the Earth as the still centre uh, of the turning world. To use T.S. Eliot's famous phrase, so that um, that. Copernicus and Galileo and the whole beginnings of modern astronomy, Kepler uh, uh, and others um, who've, who've followed through on that, um, represent this, uh, that first challenge, that first decentering of the Earth in relationship to the, to the cosmos. Uh, the second one Freud puts forward uh, is uh, that associated with Darwin and the theory of evolution. Uh, that so many of the uh, theologies and uh, divine cosmogenies that religious traditions have proposed um, uh, give man a privileged, the human species, a privileged relationship in re relation to the rest of creation and particularly in relationship to the animal world. Okay. Uh, as Freud says, uh, a, a dominating position over his fellow creatures. Uh, 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 he, he denied the possession of reason to them. To himself, he attributed an immortal soul and made claims to a divine descent, which permitted him to break the bonds of community between him uh, and the animal kingdom. Um, so evolution then decenters uh, uh, the, hum the human subject in relationship to uh, his place in the physical um, living world of other creatures, uh, what Freud calls a biological blow to human narcissism. And the third blow is psychological. Uh, he positions himself in that tradition of decentering scientific thought. Uh, and again, I'll just read out a couple of sentences from that sequence. Um, he says, man, man feels himself to be supreme within his own mind. Somewhere in the core of his ego, he has developed an organ of observation to keep a watch on his impulses and actions and to see whether they harmonize with the demands of the external world. This is, you might almost say that this is the very account uh, Freud gave in the text we looked at last week. Um, of uh, the realist conception of the ego. Here he seems to be problematizing that. His internal perception, consciousness, gives the ego news of all the important occurrences in the mind's working, and the will uh, directed by these reports carries out what the ego orders and modifies anything that seeks to accomplish itself spontaneously. Uh, for this mind is not a simple thing. On the contrary, it is a hierarchy of subordinated and, and superordinated agencies, a labyrinth of impulses striving independently of one another towards action, corresponding with the multiplicity of drives and of relations with the external world. For proper functioning, it is necessary that the highest of these agencies, the ego, should have, to, should have knowledge of all that is going forward and it, in, that its will should penetrate everywhere so as to exert its influence throughout the mind. But in, and in fact, the ego feels secure, both as to the completeness and trustworthiness of the reports it receives from the different parts of the mind, okay? Except, except that in certain conditions and in certain uh, moments, um, uh, something else seems to happen that challenges that view of the ego, the ego's confidence that it both knows and can master and control the mind and its own impulses. And, um, and in particular, uh, the, uh, so there's two theses there. There's one about the mind's transparency to itself, to self-observation. Uh, I look inward and I see what's there through reflection uh, and, and, and control, uh, ma mastery uh, of, the, of the impulses uh, in the mind. However, in these disturbing conditions, the ego feels uneasy. It comes up against the limits to its power in its own house, the mind. Thoughts emerge suddenly without one's knowing where they come from, nor can one do anything to drive them away. These alien guests even seem to be more powerful than those that are at the ego's command. They resist all the well-proved measures of enforcement used by the will. Uh, they remain, remain unmoved by logical refutation, are unaffected by the contradictory assertions of reality. Uh, or else impulses appear which seem like those of a stranger, so that the ego disowns them. They don't belong to me, yet it has to fear them and take precautions against them. 
that we've seen in Freud's account of hysteria, but in particular the, the two, le two lectures about the cases of obsessional neurosis, where um, exactly that experience is undergone by, uh, by the subjects. The ego says to itself, quote, this is an illness, a foreign invasion, a foreign invasion. It increases its vigilance but cannot understand why it feels so strangely paralyzed. Okay. Uh, and then Freud wants to distinguish the responses to that on the one hand of what was then, we've got to go back to the, the moment where Freud's speaking, um, uh, 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 sort of late 19th century, early 20th century psychiatry on the one hand uh, and psychoanalysis on the other. The, the, one of the dominant um, uh, understandings in 19th century psychiatry would have been precisely this is evidence of degeneracy, of hereditary disposition, of constitutional inferiority. That's why these people are, uh, the, uh, uh, their egos are unable to um, master control and, uh, and understand what's happening in, the, in their own minds. Uh, by contrast, he says, uh, psychoanalysis says something else. And in a kind of rhetorical strategy, unusual in Freud, um, he sort of, he, he, uh, he, he invents a kind of speech uh, of psychoanalysis to the ego. Okay, he addresses the ego rather, rather like a kind of, I feel, a, a headmaster giving an end of term report or something. Um, uh, psychoanalysis says to the ego, nothing has entered into you from without. You talk about an alien invasion, about thoughts that don't belong to you but belong to strangers that appear in your mind. Uh, uh, and the response of psychoanalysis is, nothing has entered into you from without. A part of the activity of your own mind has been withdrawn from your knowledge and from the command of your will. That too is why you are so weak in your own defence. You are using one part of your force to fight the other part and you cannot concentrate the whole of your forces as you would against an external enemy. Okay. Um, the symptoms which you experience as suffering you do not recognize are derived from your own rejected drives. Uh, you do not know uh, that in fact uh, they are seeking a substitutive uh, satisfaction of these repudiated drives. Uh, he says to the ego, you behave like an absolute ruler who is content with the information supplied by his highest officials and never goes among the people to hear their voice. And so the, it ends with this moral injunction, uh, which echoes down the ages, indeed from Socrates, uh, to the ego, turn your eyes inward, look into your own depths, learn first to know yourself. Then you will understand why you are bound to fall ill, and perhaps you will avoid falling ill in future. So thus the speech of psychoanalysis to the ego. And Freud comments uh, that it's the task of psychoanalysis to seek to educate the ego. Um, and uh, the life of the sexual drives cannot be wholly tamed. Mental processes are in themselves often unconscious uh, and only reach the ego in the form of uh, incomplete and untrustworthy perceptions. So this amounts to the recognition that the e quote, and he italicizes it, the ego is not master in its own house. The ego is not master in its own house. This represents the third blow to man's self-love. Uh, which I may call the psychological one. Okay, so that's how Freud sets up that uh, the notion of the Copernican Revolution as an <coughs> exemplary uh, instance of uh, or paradigm of modern science. And he affiliates his own thought and his own project of psychoanalysis with the, the, the Copernican Revolution. Now Laplanche also picks up on this. Uh, and does something slightly different with it, but I think very interesting with it. So I want to present some of Laplanche's basic ideas. I'll be drawing on two essays, uh, a long uh, essay called The Unfinished Copernican Revolution, uh, and a shorter essay called Intromission and Implantation, which is the one I've asked you to read. But we'll make available the longer essay uh, on the Moodle for you to consult, particularly if you want to work on the topic of Laplanche. The Unfinished Copernican uh, Revolution essay. It's quite a dense piece of writing. Though I think it's, with Laplanche, it's very systematic. Um, uh, and so you can go back and reread it, and you can see uh, how he, you know, as it were, itemizes his points and how one thing follows from another. So there's a kind of um, 
careful structuring of his, the progress of his argument, which is characteristic of him. He picks up on Freud's um, affiliation of psychoanalysis with Copernicus and the Copernican Revolution, and he fills out that. He gives us a little, I think, quite interesting sort of potted history uh, of the development of astronomical thought. And in particular, he, wants, he sets it up in terms of a struggle between different lines of thought, okay? between going right back into the ancient world. Uh, one was always the dominant one, and that was the, the geocentric model of the Earth, because it was bound up not just with astronomy and observation, but with a sort of uh, theological and metaphysical um, understanding of uh, human life and of the world. Uh, so that if, you, if astronomers like Aristarchus of Samos and others who challenged the geocentric hypothesis, this wasn't just a disagreement among astronomers. This was felt to be blasphemous because it challenged uh, the, re uh, the religious understanding of the, uh, of the divine uh, organization of the cosmos where, with the earth at the center and the different spheres. Um, you'll have come across this model in, in say, medieval and, uh, and Elizabethan literature. Um, the earth is at the center of the universe. There are these crystalline spheres, which are the, the planets, uh, and they move uh, around the earth. And the whole thing is, uh, resonates musically. It's harmonic. Uh, and musical theory and, 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 and um, uh, uh, astronomical and cosmological theory uh, very much went in tandem together. Uh, it was felt that you could, you know, certain people could hear the music of the spheres, as it was called, because they represented um, different kind of vibrational patterns um, which showed the harmony uh, of the cosmos. Uh, and this was to some extent uh, uh, supported by uh, observations of various kinds going back to the Babylon, first Babylonian observers um, who did extraordinary calculations for, uh, uh, in coming pretty, pretty accurately or pretty closely to guessing the distances between some of the stars and, and the Earth, etc. But there was always an oppositional um, hypothesis which had great difficulties because it wasn't just, as I say, an intellectual disagreement. It was often felt to be uh, uh, both religiously blasphemous and also um, counterintuitive, okay? Uh, because if you just appeal to ordinary, everyday human experience, it's very obvious. The sun rises in the east, we see it moving across the sky, and it sits in the west. And it does it all the time. It doesn't check, doesn't go, there's no days in which it occasionally goes backwards, um, you know, or in which things happen in a radically different way. You know, this happens again and again. You know, a human experience testifies to the fact that the sun moves around the earth. How could you doubt it for a minute? Your senses tell you that that's the case. So the, uh, the heliocentric hypothesis was always a kind of mon minority, but it was there. And the dominant hypothesis d did run into difficulties. Predictions would be made, some of them surprisingly accurate, um, but, but there would be repeated um, failures of the predictions based on the Ptolemaic model. And the Ptolemaic model is the synthesis of a whole tradition going back hundreds and hundreds of years that was made by, by Ptolemy. You know, we can see one residue of this, not that we operate in a Ptolemaic system anymore, in the leap year. But they had lots of problems like that, where you know, every now and then you'd have an extra day or, an, or you know, the, uh, the, uh, the equinox didn't turn out quite to be where it was supposed to be by the mathematical calculations based on the geocentric model, etc. And then they'd invent further hypotheses to, mathematically to explain it, because the mathematicians who elaborated this were extraordinarily resourceful and inventive mathematicians. So, you know, they would they would uh, 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 proliferate a whole set of supplementary hypotheses about uh, different kinds of cycles and deference and afferents and this you know extraordinary proliferation of of, of second order hypotheses that were invented to, to to shore up and explain the fact that the dominant model didn't quite work, and in some cases dramatically didn't work. Uh, and so lots of uh, intellectual and mathematical speculation over the centuries was, were, was devoted to these, ex these extra second-order hypotheses to shore it up. Now, you know, uh, Laplanche wants to, to take over this notion of a struggle of different lines of thought. And one, one further comment I'll make about that is that the challenge to the traditional dominant um, Ptolemaic geocentric model is not just a challenge to how we are to think about the heavens, it's a challenge to human experience. 
to the human being, the human subject, as the subject of perception, of perceptions that can be trusted. Okay? So it's an epistemological decentering, a decentering to the human being as the subject of knowledge. That our experiences uh, ca can be both real and and misinformational. <laughs> okay, that, that we look at the sun and indeed it's not a mirage, it's not an illusion. You know, there's the sun in the east and we see it travelling across the sky and indeed it does set in the west. Uh, and that's the world we live in. Okay, and everything about our our, our sense perceptions and our sense of um, you know subliminal uh, in, uh, rhythms and patterns, you know, reflect that experience. Okay, but it's not a secure basis for understanding the universe. In fact, it, radi it's, it radically misleads us. So that, that is a profound challenge to uh, the idea that somehow or other our, either our sense perceptions or our concepts are adequate to the nature of the universe. Okay? That somehow or other either the structure of our minds or the structure of the universe is such uh, that our minds are adequate instruments of knowledge. And the, and the spontaneous perceptions and ideas of our minds are adequate uh, sources or bases for a, 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 a trustworthy knowledge of the external world. Okay, so it's, there's an epistemological decentering there, which Laplanche uh, underlines, and he, he think he works that through in terms of a number of different thinkers. And I, I haven't got time to go into Husserl and Ma and and others. Okay, that somehow or other the Earth. Uh, or the external world is in conformity with our perceptions, or in conformity, in, uh, which is the case of Locke in the, uh, the tradition of um, uh, uh, English empiricism, or it is in congruency with or conformity with our pre-given concepts, which would be in the, the case of the German tradition of Kant and Kantian idealism. Now, Laplanche's proposition, which I quoted in my email, is... Um, in that second section of the essay, the unconscious and internal other, but not at the center. Okay. My vision, he says, of Freud's Copernican revolution coincides only partly with what he says about it himself. And then he offers his, his, his uh, epigram almost. Indeed, if Freud is his own Copernicus, he is also his own Ptolemy. The revolution in astronomy lasted two millennia, with some intuitions of the truth almost from the start, but with an initial going astray. Whereas in psychoanalysis, both lines of thought are produced by the same thinker. Simultaneously, he says, there's the discovery uh, at a very early stage of, of, of a, a conjoint discovery, he says, on the one hand of the unconscious and the other of seduction. And then there's a going astray. Uh, the wrong path taken, a movement of recentering or self-centering, or even he says self-begetting. Okay, the notion of a of a uh, uh, of, of a development of the mind that is uh, internally generated and, and spontaneous, rather than in relationship to and in reaction to the figure of the other. So the Copernican uh, model of the cosmos comes to stand in for Laplanche for. Uh, what one could call, I suppose, uh, an other-centered psychology, uh, 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 an emphasis on the fact that uh, the various uh, structures and formations of the human mind uh, do not arise spontaneously from within, uh, but are always to be understood in relation to the other, that human subjectivity is intersubjectivity. And therefore, the unconscious is a mental system. Human sexuality uh, uh, don't just spontaneously develop from within, uh, but are formations of, byproducts of, our initial centering on the other, which is where human beings begin, where human life begins. Okay? And as he says, the difference between cos cosmological theory and psychoanalytical theory is that you can't say of the cosmos, that it went first of all through a, a Ptolemaic stage and then became Copernican or the other way around. <laughs> okay. But you can say of the human uh, being uh, that uh, the human infant begins in a, in a state of radical, even abject dependency on the other uh, and moves, is drawn into the gravitational field and orbit of the other on, on which it depends. And a certain at a certain phase of the formation of the ego uh, and of narcissism, a movement of self-centering uh, takes place, a movement of closure and self-centering, 
So that the two lines of thought within psychoanalysis and within the Freudian field, uh, which you can designate as uh, a, a decentering tendency of thought and a recentering tendency of thought, both those lines of thought, uh, 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 as it were, capture something of the human mind in, its pro in the processes of its formation. So rather than just saying, uh, and Laplanche definitely doesn't take this position, all the movements of recentering that you could label Ptolemaic are wrong, that is error, uh, and, uh, uh, and it's only those movements of decentering that are right or truthful. It's not, a, it's not simply a question of truth versus error, but rather uh, that, uh, and he's taking up a, here, a, a, if you like a methodological or philosophical position that is Hegelian, uh, it's very like the great German think thinker Hegel. He, his argument is the development of theory, the development of the concept, replicates the development of the object of the concept. In fact, is drawn in its wake. So, the, so thought f is drawn in the wake of, in, in the gravitational field of, the object which it seeks to conceptualize and explain and to grasp. So that just as the human mind is contradictory, is a contradictory structure um, and a dynamic structure, the thought that seeks to grasp it will replicate the tendencies uh, towards decentering and recentering uh, that have produced the human mind as we know it. So it's a particular understanding here of the, of the, the way in which thought develops, the way in which different fields of scientific thought come into being. Um, rather than seeing um, the development of science as being, as it were, simply an accumulation of facts which, uh, or an accumulation of uh, correct uh, individual propositions or hypotheses, uh, uh, Laplanche's thinking comes out of a whole tradition within French culture of the history and philosophy of science, which goes back to thinkers like Poincaré and um, uh, Bachelard uh, and others, who, who, think, who think about science, the development of science in terms of conceptual fields, okay? and the way in which conceptual fields uh, are networks or clusters, and that they're driven by um, uh, you know, they're like gravitational fields, if you like. They're driven by different forces, okay? They're not purely logical structures in that sense, though they are logical structures or the relations, of logical relations between different concepts. Uh, but they're organized quite often as much around ex excluding certain things as including them. Okay, so uh, w uh, one very characteristic proposition that a lot of um, uh, French thought in this tradition makes is, uh, is that often uh, conceptual fields are almost organized around a blind spot, organized around something that can't be acknowledged. Okay? And it's finding where that is in a given body of thought that is crucial to, how it, to see how it comes into being and how it develops beyond its own initial limits. And that's what Laplanche is doing uh, with, the, with the conceptual field of psychoanalysis. He sees it as being, as it were, driven by these two um, tendencies of Copernican and Ptolemaic. And he's not equating them because he does give a kind of priority to the Copernican. But he doesn't just want to sort of position uh, the, movement, the movements of recentering uh, as a simply error or or incorrect, but they need to be understood and repositioned in relationship to the more foundational, uh, other-centered Copernican movement of thought. Okay. Um, now, there he wants to say the movement of decentering in psychoanalysis is a double decentering. It's a decentering in relationship to the unconscious as a mental system that is excluded by the very formation of the ego. Uh, on the one hand, and that, that radical insight is always at risk in Freud's thought. It's always at risk of being reintegrated back uh, into a, uh, if you like, an auto-centered system. What, what, and what's missing in Freud's thought is a, a sustained conceptualization of the relation to the other. The relation to the other is there at a descriptive level, and I'll read out uh, in a moment uh, something that we looked at a few weeks ago, but it is not properly theorized as such. 
So that the developmentalist model uh, of, of the psyche of, the, uh, of human sexuality, that everything is sort of pre-programmed, like the development of the body, and it just goes through inevitable set of stages. Uh, and that is one of the key models for Freud, is at odds with a proper recognition of the relation to the other and of the foundational nature of that relation to the other, the decentering effect of that relationship to the other. So there are two others. There's the internal other, uh, which and uh, and that and the radical alienness of that internal other, the unconscious, can only be sustained by seeing it in relationship to the external other. Okay, the otherness, the radical otherness of the uh, of the of the adult in relationship to. Uh, the human infant, and indeed he points out that in in um, in Freud's thought, you can see this this tendency, uh, even just in his some of his linguistic usages, that Freud does at different moments talk about. Uh, I hope I'm going to get the grammar of this right. Uh, das andere. I think that's right. Um, the other thing in the unconscious. The, the other thing and the other person. Okay. Um, different, these different uh, pronouns here indicate, um, in fact, I think it's das andere psychische, the, the, uh, the, other, the other psychical thing, or the other thing in the psyche, which is the unconscious, uh, and which is formed as a byproduct of the relationship to the other person. And that's the very heart of Laplanche's uh, 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 system, in a way, uh, is, is that double decentering, that double relationship of otherness to the internal other uh, and the external other, and the different phases in which the human subject is open to, uh, and indeed initially radically dependent on, the external other, and then the, the movement of closure and, 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 and expulsion and separation from the other, and different privileged moments where that relation to the other is reopened. Now, I, I want to just go back to a passage which we, which, um, we looked at uh, when we were looking at the three essays on the theory of sexuality. It wasn't in that, the middle essay that we looked at in detail on infantile sexuality. It was in essay three, um, and he, where he's talking about the way in which uh, the, uh, uh, post puberty, the finding of a sexual object is in some important sense a refinding of it. Okay. And he's thinking about the relationship between adult sexuality and early infantile sexuality and in relationship to the other as object. Okay. And he has a description of you know, what you could call maternal seduction. Okay, of the role of the mother. And it's, it's quite a poignant, in some ways quite moving, um, uh, description, phenomenological description of that relationship. Um, though he doesn't then reflect on it theoretically. Um, but I'll just read out some of that description. He says, a child's intercourse with anyone responsible for his care affords him an unending source of sexual excitation um, from his erotogenic zones. This is especially so since the person in charge of him, who after all is as a rule his mother, so it's not necessarily one's biological mother, uh, it's a nurturing adult, but it's generally uh, the mother, herself regards him with feelings that are derived from her own sexual life. She strokes him, kisses him, rocks him, quite clearly treats him as a substitute for a complete sexual object. A mother would probably be horrified if she were made aware that all her marks of affection, underline that phrase, her marks of affection, were arousing her child's sexual instinct and preparing for its later intensity. She regards what she does as asexual, quotes, pure love, since, after all, she carefully avoids applying more excitations to the child's genitals than are unavoidable in nursery care. And we can just think of that exemplary uh, moment in the case study of little hands, where the mother is very, very carefully powdering around and not touching uh, his, his genital area. Uh, and, and he asks her, you know, why are you doing that? Why, why don't you put your finger there? And she says, that would be schweinisch. And says, oh, but it's great fun. And it's the interaction there, which is a casual, everyday, you know, in all kinds of ways, non-traumatic interaction. He laughs. Uh, nevertheless, you can, it's a rather, I think, exemplary instance of a kind of almost zoning of the child's body, but a zoning of it in relationship to the other. Okay. The, and it connects the two together. 
And Freud goes on to say, as we know, uh, the sexual drive is not aroused only by direct excitation of the genital zone. What we call affection will unfailingly show its effects one day uh, elsewhere. Moreover, if the mother understood more of the high importance of the part played by drives in mental life as a whole, in all its ethical and psychical achievements, she would spare herself any self-reproaches even after her enlightenment. She is only fulfilling her task in teaching the child to love. She is only fulfilling her task of teaching the child to love. It's quite a powerful um, description uh, of what one could call you know, uh, parental or maternal seduction. But it doesn't, uh, Freud doesn't, as it were, integrate it theoretically. He doesn't draw theoretical conclusions from it. So it's an awareness and even a quite powerful description that remains separated from um, the model of a spontaneous unfolding. Okay. Um, now, if the other's so important and the other's relation to the infant in particular is so important, how is that to be understood? How is that to be conceptualized? And Laplanche thinks of it. Uh, in terms of a transmission of something to the infant. Now, he's not talking about, in, in the crucial stages, language, verbal language, but he does draw on uh, an understanding of signs and sign theory, of semiotics, um, to try and grasp how uh, the transmission of meaning and affect might be understood at a pre, in a pre-linguistic way. And indeed, he makes the point that the great founder of, of semiotics, Ferdinand de Saussure, who was a linguist, when he proposes the model of signs and sign theory, um, proposes it as something which is not merely reducible to verbal language, that language is, is only one area of that, and that the whole of our lives uh, are, are saturated with sign systems, non-verbal sign systems. Sometimes they're very simple ones where the relationship between um, the signifier and the signified is, is, is fixed. Um, and we can think of the traffic code. Red equals stop, green equals go, amber equals as a warning. Okay, it's non-negotiable. Okay, you can't re-signify the, the the meanings of the colours in the code. They're, they're 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 absolutely fixed. So if you you know rush through a red light at 50 miles an hour and you're hauled up by the police and sent into court, you can't sort of reinterpret red, as it were. Say, oh, you know, I was going to visit my girlfriend and I was late, and red means passion. And I felt it was really saying to me, go for it. You know, you can't reinterpret. The meanings are fixed. Okay. Um, the signifiers and the signifieds are, are, are determined in advance, as it were. And I, I, perhaps I should say something about that. I'm, I'm assuming you're kind of familiar with that terminology, but I'll just... Uh, the notion is of a, uh, a, di a distinction between signifier and signified. And together, they form what is called the sign. Now, the signifier could be speech, verbal sounds, but it might be gestures, it, may, it might be visual signifiers, okay? Whatever can be broken down into units and elements, uh, which can then be combined in different ways with each other. And the signified is simply the meaning, the concept, that that, that particular element, red, in the traffic code, means stop, okay? But these signifiers, uh, the larger argument is, uh, the, the meaning of the, uh, of, of the signifier and the signified in most sign systems is not, as in the very simple one of the, of the, um, of the traffic code, uh, fixed, uh, but it moves, it shifts. And so that the meanings of signifiers is a function of the relationship to other signifiers. So you get a chain, S1, S2, S3, etc. So the meaning of any one element, like a word in a sentence, okay? If you take an English word, like the word volume, okay? What does the word volume mean? Uh, well, it depends where it turns up. It depends what the other signifiers are in the chain of speech. If you say, he handed me an old leather volume, then we know that volume, what volume means in that context. But if he says, oh, turn the volume down, it's too high, it means something else. Or if you're confronted with a scientific proposition about um, something displacing its, its own volume in water, uh, volume again means something different. Okay, so the signifier volume, um, the meaning it will deliver is a function of the other signifiers it's combined with uh, in, in, the, in the chain of speech. Okay, so it's, it's relational. 
In other words, there isn't a direct connection between signifier and signified. It depends on the other signifiers. There's nothing in the nature of a signifier that, that logically requires signified. Okay? Even in colour systems, you know, we may think uh, it's pretty universal that red means danger. Okay? But you know, for us, when we're, in we, when we're in mourning, we go into black. In other cultures, they go into white. Okay? There's nothing intrinsically, uh, uh, no reason why the English should say cat, the Italians gatto, the French chat. Okay? The sound doesn't have an intrinsic relation to the meaning. Right? It depends on the code in which it's uh, positioned. Okay? So he's, that, that's a very simple exposition of signifier-signified relationships. Now, <coughs> the debate at the time Laplanche was writing had been very much set up by uh, the, his, his former analyst and teacher, Lacan, in terms of semiological terms, which is why S1s and S2s turn up at one section of uh, the essay. Now, he wants to alter that in, in various ways and, and make it more supple or more subtle. So in pages 44, 45, um, he's, he's developing his notion of an enigmatic signifier. Okay? The transmission of a signifier which is pre-verbal, it may be gestural, it may be tonal, the sound of the mother's voice, uh, touch, uh, as well as visual, uh, okay, which may deliver something because it's targeted at the infant. Okay, it may deliver something uh, which nevertheless is, is, is puzzling and is enigmatic. Uh, and it's enigmatic because the signified is lost or obscure in some way, but nevertheless, the signifier to, the address of the signifier to the infant still carries power. Right? It still has a capacity to demand the attention, to arrest in the technical terms of this debate, to interpolate the subject. The recipient is interpolated. Inter is interpolated. That means it's summoned, addressed. You know, its attention is demanded. So he picks up this distinction of a signifier of something. Uh, red in a traffic code signifies stop. It's a command, signifies stop. Okay, it's the, it's the, that's it signified. Uh, it is the signifier of that signified in that code, um, but no, nowhere else necessarily. Um, and a signifier too, a signifier that is sent by one subject to another, that is addressed to another. Okay, and he's he and he partly picking up from Lacan. Lacan gives some examples of you. You're in the desert, and you come across cuneiform writing. Okay, you know it's saying something. You know it's addressing the passerby, but you don't know what it says. Okay, whereas uh, that and that's a more, if you like, didactic or academic example of the way in which something still has a capacity to address you, even when you don't know what it's saying. And this is particularly vivid, not if you're somebody at an archaeological site who's looking at writing who, uh, whose conventions have long since been lost in the mists of time, but if you're an infant who suddenly is picked up and somebody puts their breast in your mouth, okay, you know it's you that is being addressed, okay, or if they're wiping your backside or they're doing something like that to your body. In other words, the signifiers impact on the body surfaces. Now, we've already looked at a set of reflections about this in Anzio's essay on the skin ego, haven't we? And indeed, Laplanche invokes the notion of the skin ego. That is the surface on which these primitive enigmatic signifiers coming from the other are inscribed or implanted or impacted. Okay? So the infant may not quite know what is, something's coming to them from the other. Uh, and Laplanche makes a distinction between two levels between uh, the level of uh, action and reaction, between, uh, particularly between mother and infant, there are biologically pre-attuned channels in which, very, uh, say, mothers who've got newborn infants are particularly alert or sensitive to um, uh, cries and calls on the infant. Indeed, women will often report that the, c the call of the infant will start them lactating. Um, and I've even had a friend say to uh, the embarrassment of this happening when somebody else's baby cries and your body responds to it, as it were. So these there are a set of pre-given attunements between mother and baby. But Laplanche's point is on the back of that, that, and that's an interaction between two human subjects, okay? 
uh, it, it's, uh, on the back of that is a one-way transmission because the adult is an adult who has an unconscious and, a, and an organized sexuality. Uh, and, and, uh, and the infant isn't at that point. The newborn infant isn't. The infant is yet to acquire an unconscious. So something else is being transmitted on the back of, uh, and, and this parallels and reproduces the old distinction we looked at between instinct and drive. Okay. At the level of instinctual self-survival, there are these pre-attuned mechanisms between mother and child. But on the back of them, there are these enigmatic signifiers there's an surplus of excitation. There is something else that's being transmitted to the infant. And it's enigmatic, not just because the infant doesn't have a code to translate it or is capable of doing that at that initial stage of receptivity, but because it's enigmatic to the transmitter, okay? That, uh, that there is an unconscious dimension uh, to the, the, adult, the adult's relationship to the child. And again, in a rather nice epigram, uh, Laplanche says, the child outside the adult awakens the child inside the adult. In other words, uh, one of the most psychically charged things an adult can do is to nurture an infant, whether it's the mother or the father or, or, or any adult, really, I suppose, who might be in that nurturing position. That, the, that relationship to the infant um, calls out within the whole unconscious prehistory uh, of the nurturing adult. So there is that um, unconscious enigmatic dimension to the act of nurturing. Uh, and that's, Laplanche wants to go right back to that fundamental moment and to try and find ways of thinking about uh, the activity on the part of the adult and the activity on the part of the infant. And the activity on the part of the infant he is what he wants to call translation. Not in, uh, a cerebral intellectual activity. Translation literally means carrying something across. That's the root meaning of the word. Uh, so something is carried across from the other uh, to the recipient, the infantile recipient, and something is blocked from being carried across. Uh, uh, that, that Freud says in the letter on translation, um, a failure of translation is what we mean by repression. But something much more at the level of a visceral uh, defensive reaction, as it were. I want now to uh, talk briefly about the short essay, Implantation Intromission, which we've asked you to read. It's a short essay which gives uh, a brief uh, summary of Freud's arguments about uh, the Copernican Revolution and his affiliation of psychoanalysis uh, with uh, Copernicus and Copernican thought. Uh, but he wants to challenge, in fact, uh, what he argues uh, is a, dom a set of dominant ideas within psychoanalysis and, and, and to often with, within Freud, in which uh, a certain description of psychical processes uh, assumes tacitly uh, that, as he says, everything wells up from within, everything comes from the interior. And he's thinking very much about the origins of psychic life, uh, that um, even when verbs are used about putting something from the outside inside, like to interject, to repress, it's always the subject, the infant, uh, who is performing that act. And uh, the great and very rich range uh, of um, descriptions of psychical processes that you find in psychoanalysis to repress, uh, to symbolize, to interject, to sub sublimate, uh, etc., are always I, re I interject, I project, I repress, I symbolize, I affirm, uh, as if there's an I there from the beginning. Uh, now, what Laplanche wants to do and is to say a, a properly, as it were, Copernican perspective in which the subject is in relationship to another, in this case the adult, the adult who is prior to the infant and to the emergence of the infant subjectivity. The key processes which give their title to the essay, implantation, intromission, are acts or processes performed by the other, which take the infant as their object, as their target. Okay, um, And that is a, a properly um, Copernican perspective. Uh, it positions the adult there from the beginning as in some sense an initiator. Uh, and I'll read from Laplanche's essay. Uh, 
on the third page in from the, the beginning, uh, to project, to interject, to identify, to disavow, to foreclose, all the verbs used by analytic theory to describe psychical processes share the feature of having the subject, the individual in question, I project, I disavow, I foreclose. What has been scotomized, as to say blanked out, um, quite simply, is the discovery that the process originally comes from the other. The process originally comes from the other. Processes in which the individual takes an active part are all secondary in relation to the originary moment, which is that of a passivity, that of seduction, in which something target comes from the other and targets the individual. And he calls this tendency to uh, assume uh, that everything wells up from within and from the eye, from the beginning, autocentrisms. It's centered on the self. Uh, it's in that sense Ptolemaic. Uh, like the Ptolemaic model of the of the cosmos with the Earth at the center and everything else moving around, and he wants to propose something quite different. Uh, it's there uh, in the seduction theory. Freud, uh, Laplanche says, uh, sexuality comes to the subject from the other, was implanted in him by the other, uh, but it tends to get lost when we move from the trauma model to the drive and developmental model of sexuality. I'm quoting again from the second last page of the essay. Uh, Laplanche writes, We propose to give a full place in metapsychology to processes irreducible to an autocentrism, those whose subject is quite simply the other. Not the metaphysical capital other, as with a writer like Lacan, um, but the other of originary seduction, the seductive other, uh, the adult other. Central among such processes is what he calls implantation. By this I wish to indicate that the signifiers uh, brought by the adult are fixed as onto a surface in the psychophysiological skin of the subject in which the unconscious agency, the unconscious as a system, is not yet differentiated. It is these signifiers received passively by the, by the subject that are the object of the first active attempts at translation, residues of which are the primarily repressed, the source objects. Something has come from the outside, an object, uh, into the inside uh, where it starts to function as the source of the drive. Uh, implantation, he says, is a process which is common, everyday, normal or neurotic. Beside it, he wants to posit a second process that comes from the other as its violent variant. A place must be given to what he calls intromission. While implantation allows the individual to take things up actively, indeed one could say it provokes the recipient to an active response, at once translating and repressing, one must try to conceive of another process which blocks this, which short circuits the differentiation of the psychical agencies such as the ego, the superego, uh, in the process of their formation and puts into the interior of the subject an element that is resistant to all metabolization, that is to say, by all <coughs> uh, processes of internalization, uh, assimilation, etc., are blocked by this, by something that is uh, with a degree of violence that is placed inside the subject. Uh, he says, I have no doubt that a process related to intromission as a violent variant on implantation has its role in the formation even of the superego, a foreign body that cannot be metabolized, something that is irreducibly alien to the subject. However great the opposition between the classical Freudian auto-centered processes and the other-centered ones that I've introduced here, it will be noticed that all of them take as their model well-known bodily processes. Uh, they bring into play the volume of the body, its skin envelope, its surfaces, and its orifices. Uh, and he then adds a very suggestive final proposition that intromission, the violent and intrusive version of implantation, relates principally to anality and orality, to those particular orifices, whereas implantation, that which allows an active response in reply, um, refers rather to the surface of the body as a whole, to its perceptive periphery. So it's a quite suggestive um, 
distinction he makes, and he's invoking here implicitly uh, the notion of the skin ego that we considered last week as this uh, a surface that is the first primitive experience of, of the body's limits and boundaries, uh, which is a protective envelope, uh, uh, the first experience of oneself as a kind of contained uh, whole, um, and also as a highly sensitive receptive surface in which contact um, with the other, uh, the massage, remember, is a message, contact with the other, takes place in that very uh, primitive way on the surfaces of the body. Uh, and it's there that uh, the processes of what Laplanche will go on to call primal seduction uh, take place, uh, in which the, uh, the beginnings of human subjectivity are initiated uh, from the outside by the other. Let me recall the statement we considered when we were looking at Ancio's essay on the skin ego last week, a uh, very epigrammatic statement, where he says, the massage is a message. The massage is a message. It's through the touch of the nurturing adult, and particularly of the mother, uh, that something is transmitted uh, directly to the, the very skin surfaces of the infant's body, uh, even if it's only at, this, at the level of affect uh, and its uh, effect of awakening uh, sensations in the, in the body surface. Uh, a massage, the massage is a message.